The New Disruptors is sponsored this week by Zip Recruiter. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that suggests that a barn raising is hardly a metaphor. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of the magazine. Yancey Strickler is one of the founders of Kickstarter, and he's had a wild ride for the last four and a half years. His background is in journalism, and he worked at eMusic. But this is a wholly new kind of thing, not just for him, but sort of for everybody. Four and a half years in, Kickstarter seems like it's been there forever, and we'll talk about its origins and its present and maybe a little future with Yancey. Uh, Yancey, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure, of course. Happy to be here. Great, great to have you. And, you know, we met, uh, I think, at the XOXO Festival last year, but I think I've been talking to you on and off for years, you know, first for like an economist story and then for other follow-up stuff. And, and every time we talk, the it's like um, uh, the Powers of Ten, that Eames uh, documentary. It's like, uh, what's the total this month, this year? The numbers get bigger and bigger, the scale of projects. How has the last four and a half years been for you? <laughs> Are you feeling pretty good about them? Yeah, it's 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 been great. I mean, really, it's... Um... You know, Kickstarter launched uh, April '09, so we've been live for four and a half years. But you know, Perry's been working on this for uh, over ten years, and I've been working on it for about, um, I guess, about eight years. And Charles is about six or seven. So you know, it's it's been a long, long road, longer than it may seem. Um, yeah, it's it's obviously it's a blast. You've surprised me. I've read a million things about Kickstarter, and I actually didn't know the length of that history. Now, I know I know your background. You came from more of a journalism background, right? You were working as a writer. You worked for a radio news service. You were writing. Did you study journalism, or how did you fall into that field before the, the Kickstarter thing took over your life? Uh, you know, in, in college, I, I was a double major in English and, and literary and cultural studies, which is basically comp lit. Um, and you know, my goal was always to be a writer and I moved to New York shortly after graduating college and was able to do that. So made a living as a music journalist, uh, full time for nine years. That's great. Wait, you made a living as a journalist <laughs> in the late nineties? <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. You know, it happens every now and then. All right. Uh, it's, it's harder to do now for sure. But you know, that, that, yeah, that was my path and that was always my goal and, uh, along the way in 2005, um, Perry and I happened to meet and, and Perry at the time was working on the idea of Kickstarter and working as a waiter and uh, as an artist and doing a lot of different things. And we just became friends and, um, and you know, just started sharing in this idea together and talking about it and trying to figure out how to actually do this thing. Oh, that's that's really cool. So I, I knew that he had had the idea for a while, but I didn't realize. So this was always percolating away for a while. You guys were talking, and he had been thinking about it. Yeah, he was thinking about it and and, and taking various steps to make it a reality for about four years before we met. And you know, I think that our meeting was one of the first really tangible things that happened. Just in that we really started to dig into it together and, and talk about it a lot and. About a year ago, or earlier this year, we did, uh, on the occasion of our third birthday, we posted the entire design history of Kickstarter. So the very first terrible Photoshop that Perry did, a <laughs> photo of a dry erase board in my apartment, the first uh, mock-up that Charles made where you could see, oh, wow, a designer touched this for the first time. Um, but you, sh you see the whole thing, and what's wild is that even the very first sketch from 05, you look at that and you see Kickstarter. It's the same. The structure is the same. 
And so it's, it's been very consistent. And, and really what was happening for those four years that Perry and Charles and I were, were trying to make Kickstarter reality is we were just you know, struggling to make our ideas tangible and actually exist on the web because none of us can code and we made a series of terrible decisions and, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, just everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Fortunately, it was while no one was watching. So, you know, it's something that's largely invisible to the public, but, but you know, the, the, the kernel of the idea, the core of what we're doing has been consistent this entire time. And so that's, that's one of the most exciting things is that this drive that we all had and this deep belief that making it easier for people to create art was something worth committing our lives to, that that has, you know, shown itself to be true and that there is no plan B, no pivot to use the word people love to use <laughs> around Kickstarter. This is what we always hoped it would be. And, you know, wow, it's, it's actually turned out that way. Well, before you, you uh, so you've met Perry, but before you guys actually launched the site, you were at eMusic, which I thought of as more of a, like a, a music sales site, one of the earlier ones that was focused on musicians. And, but you were there on the editorial side, but also helped them launch a record label. So how much of the e, the like dot com, that kind of post crash, pre second boom experience did you absorb at eMusic that taught you about how to go forward? A lot. E-music was interesting. I mean, they were actually the first website to ever sell an MP3. Uh, that was in 1998. They were the first music service there was, period. So there was a really interesting history. They had this all-you-can-eat model of, of a subscription service, and then Universal acquired them, and they got spat out into some hedge fund, <laughs> and, you know, just like, it's just it's just wild. Now E-music is co-owned by Ray Kurzweil, so you can probably do an interesting track of the history of the internet just at looking at what's happened with eMusic. But uh, it, it was a great place. It was a great place to work. I mean, it was a, it's a service that uh, had a strange catalog while it was there. It was all, um, you know, independent records, but just a lot of odd things, Smithsonian Folkways, the Shanaki catalog, just a, a, lot of, a lot of great, uh, like, prestige jazz records. We had Matador. Uh, so it was, a, it was a catalog of kind of a hard-to-explain group of records that were really wonderful. And so I got hired uh, in 05 by Michael Azarad, uh, who was editor-in-chief, and he hired me as his managing editor, and we set out trying to figure out how to make sense of that thing. And so that was a, that was a great experience. And I, Michael ended up going on to do other things, and uh, I eventually became editor-in-chief, and I started a, a record label there. It was a lot of fun. I, you know, we were just all seeing a lot of bands playing house parties that we loved, and I was always seeing these homemade CDRs sitting at the merch table that weren't online. So I decided to try to start a label where we would take no money whatsoever. Every penny would go to the artists. <laughs> awesome. They would retain full rights to their work, and we would just promote the hell out of it. And you know, so I, was talking, I was talking to Jack Conti just a few weeks ago, and one of the things that drives him nuts, and you know, he started um, Patreon, which is kind of a it's a slightly tangential crowdfunding model, sort of different kind of thing. But the thing that drove him crazy was something like this is that you had musicians, you had digital ability, but it was hard for people like you could have a million uh, YouTube views and everything. It was still hard for musicians to make a living. It sounds like you were at this even at that point before Kickstarter at that from a different angle, you'd see people trying to do this and there was no way for, I mean, they were playing house parties, but in order to reach scale, to turn this into something that was either a big part or entirely what they did, the tools were lacking to get them to bump up a level. Well, I remember the first the, the first two records they put out, one, by, one was by a band called High Places, the other is called Breathe I'll Breathe, uh, two records that are awesome, still stand by. 
And, you know, one of those bands made 20 grand from three months of sales through music. And that, and that was life-changing for them, life-changing. Uh, another band that we worked with uh, ended up making $60,000 from three months of sales. And this is money in their pocket. And, like, the experience I had of seeing how, how impactful that was was huge. The other thing that I was really struck by is during that time, there was a lot of conversation going in the press about you know, how to monetize music and things like that. And, and what I kept thinking with that is that's such like a businessman's problem. You know, none of my friends who are in bands are thinking, how am I going to monetize my music? They're thinking, like, <laughs> how do I make my record? Yeah. You know, monetizing music is, is a question of the company that's trying to exploit this stuff. And so to me, this entire conversation, as big as it was, had absolutely no empathy for the people who actually make music. And so that was something that, that Perry and I used to talk about a lot, was how everyone is focusing on this problem that is kind of a luxury but for a lot of people, just actually making something is the biggest hurdle and, and probably the most meaningful one. And that, you know, if they go on to be rich and famous from their art, like good for them and who, you know, a lot of people certainly would want that to happen. But most of the artists that we love and respect, they just want to make something and be proud of it and, and have other people see it. And, you know, I, I increasingly felt like I was looking at a world that just did not understand in any way what it was like to be an artist and was trying to solve problems that weren't problems for artists. There are problems for business people. And uh, I don't know, there was just a disconnect there. So that's something that we certainly thought about a lot. And, you know, we, we were always felt certain that the thing that we were thinking about, the thing we were focusing on was a, a real problem and one that we had faced and one that the artists that we love, you know, we knew they struggled to make stuff. You know, I, Jim Jarmusch movies are not going to make a ton of money. But he just wants to make them because he wants to tell stories. And the world is not made for Jim Jarmusch, but there are a lot of people who love him and who would you know, love to help him, you know, put something together. This is the uh, – we'll call back to this later. I like to like plant the seed later and <laughs> we'll talk about too. But the thing about Rich and Famous is a lot of – you know, there are musicians who their ambition is to become rich and famous and some do and most don't. Just like getting into the NBA or something. It's like there's a, there's a very, very high bar and a machine that gets you to the top of the charts and all that. And, and you have, it's a very – specialized thing. A lot of people wouldn't mind if they made a living. And and we'll come back to that, I think, as we talk more about Kickstarter itself. But it's not that people are out there to say, uh, you know, it'd be wonderful to make a million dollars a year, but making $20,000 for an album or 60000 for those groups where before they were making a f maybe hundreds or thousands and it was an enormous amount of work to get them to that point. Like that, that changes your whole life, even though it doesn't necessarily get rid of the requirement to have a job or it doesn't make you famous. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, a huge moment in my life was reading uh, an interview on Pitchfork that Mark Richardson, who's now the uh, editor-in-chief of Pitchfork, great guy, Mark Richardson interviewed David Berman of the band The Silver Jews. And, uh, and, and David's a great artist. He's also a poet. He's published several volumes of poetry. I've always really loved and respected him. And this is in like maybe 2000, 2001. And in the interview, Mark asked David how much money he made the year before. And I loved him asking that question. It's kind of an audacious yeah. question. And David said he made, I think it was about 30 grand. And he lives in Louisville and, you know, he made that stretch. But he's like, yeah, from touring and like everything, made about $30,000 last year. And... You know, at the time, that wasn't that far from what I made. I think I made like 22. And I was like, how, is, how do I make roughly the same amount of money as one of my favorite artists? Like, that makes yeah. no sense to me. Yeah. I pay $10 for the pleasure of seeing him do his job. No one gives a shit about what I do. And, you know, there's this, there's this sense that because 
the nature of art puts artists in this pedestal position that we assume it comes with all these other things, but it really doesn't. And so the working class, the, the nature of most artists is one of being like working poor to middle class. And, you know, it's not clear to anybody because who likes talking about money? No one wants to talk about money. But the fact that it is that it is hard to scratch that together, you know, and that is unclear, I think it's ultimately to the disservice of artists. But the trade-off that you have is is that you get to do something creative and you get to commit your life to something that you love. And for that reason, it's like, well, you get paid shit, but at least you get to do all these other things. And I, I don't think that's an unfair way for someone in a nine-to-five office job to read it, but it's just an interesting dynamic that I don't think is immediately apparent to people and really has always has always stuck with me. The fact that people, the disproportionate amount of, yeah, yeah, is that, that, that the people that you might love the most, well, it's the power law curve I feel like I talk in every other episode about is that there's always going to be people because of attention, at focus, marketing, the way our economy works, always going to be people being at the very top, right? And then everybody else, you know, 95 to 99.9%, depending on the market, is going to be along that sloping curve or the really long tail and one of the things that the internet has given us in the last few years has given us is the ability to maybe rotate the dial and make the slope of that tail a little higher than it otherwise would have been but not to get rid of it there's always going to be a long tail and it's going to always taper off right right it, well so the kickstarter so when you started this so you've you came out of this place you have these realizations you guys have been talking about it now for years also, I'm fascinated by this. I don't think I realized that none of you were programmers. So you have a compelling idea. You have ideas about it. How did you kickstart Kickstarter? I, I, know the, I know the origin story of Perry Chen coming up with the idea, trying to sell tickets to an event in New Orleans and the com- complexity of, of organizing that. And then that was one of the formation stories. But I don't know if I know or if, if this has been told us widely. Like, What was the mechanism? How did you – go from idea to saying we need programming, we need to figure out how to do the financial side and collect money and build a site and scale at, at that stage. What, what was that about? Well, you know, I mean, we we took money from friends and family uh, starting in, I think it was probably 06. Not a huge amount of money, but just, you know, good friends of ours, pretty much all of whom are in the arts, uh, musicians, um, you know, people like that. The, the very first investor in Kickstarter was David Cross. Uh, oh, that's great from Mr. Show and Arrested <laughs> that's Development. Hilarious, wonderful. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great a great thing that you know. Hopefully, we'll make it to his Wikipedia page someday. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's just sort of people who connected with this very idealistic vision that we had, and you know, we used that money to hire some external developers, and that did not work out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we ventured down that road a couple more times before things finally came together, and we met you know, a, a good group of developers who were able to, to help us build the site. And the lead, one of those people, Lance Ivey, is still with us, which is great. We got him to move from Walla Walla, Washington to New York once uh, after we had launched. But yeah, it was it was a long learning process. Um, you know, I still had my day job at the time. Perry and Charles were both full-time and just, you know, it was tough. It was tough trying to make this thing happen. And it wasn't really clear what the path was going to be. Let's take a break to talk about ZipRecruiter, one of our sponsors. I've been an entrepreneur for over two decades, and it's always been hard to find the right people to hire. With so many job boards out there, how can you know which one will produce the best talent? Realistically, to fill the position fast and with the perfect candidate, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can do it with this week's sponsor, ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter lets you post to more than 40 job sites at once. 
ZipRecruiter also posts your job on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just post once and you watch the qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. You can screen applicants, rate them, hire the right people fast. And right now, for you, dear listeners, you can try ZipRecruiter.com for free and find out why it's been used by over 100,000 businesses. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND, like New Disruptors, or click on the banner at NewDisrupt.org. Give them a try for the next position for which you're hiring, and you'll see how you can get the best of all the job boards with just a few clicks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ND. And now back to the show. When you told people about this in that stage, though, could you, did you have, I mean, was your elevator pitch tons of people could give their favorite artists a tiny amount of money and we take a small piece of that and we're going to be the glue that makes this happen? Or, or am I – I mean that's the pitch sort of now on a much broader scale. But what was that the kind of pitch then or did you have a different – I don't know how hard you had to pitch people or if, they, if you just said this is going to be a way for people to support their favorite artists and people went, yeah, 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 let me help with that. Yeah, I think you know, it was a number of things. One, we had to make the case for the fact that artists needed money. Uh, bizarrely among, <laughs> among no, some business people we talked to, they just did yeah. not, that was not clear to them at all. Um, and you know, I, we got a lot of skepticism. Why would someone give someone money? Everyone, everyone's question was, well, if I'm not getting any money back, why would I do that? And we're like, well, cl- clearly you're not a fan if you're thinking that way. Like, this is not about that. And so, you know, we were, we were approaching this in a very, fan-driven, idealistic way, and everyone else was hearing what we were saying, and they're like, well, there should be a business solution to this. And so I think there was a disconnect between what people felt like a solution to this issue might be, if they even agreed there was a solution, versus what we thought it would be. And so there was not a lot of support for the idea among people who were not our friends. Um, and uh, But, you know, fortunately, we were able to get enough momentum to get to get the site launched. I mean, the site launched on a Tuesday at like 4.12 p.m., you know, it was launches in the biggest quote marks imaginable. Um, We were just relieved that we could get this thing going. And, and, you know, about a month and a half before, we'd opened up an alpha of the site, which we shared with about 50 of our friends who we had exhausted over the past four years by asking their feedback and like showing them the mock-up for our MySpace widget and being like, how do you think this feels? And so we shared it with them and asked them if they'd like to start a project. And we also gave each of them five invites to start uh, to share with other people. And that was all we did. You know, so we launched that Tuesday. Uh, Andy Bayo put a post up on Waxy uh, later that day or the next morning. And that was pretty much it. You know, Perry I, I kind of love – I try to explain Andy Bayo to people because everybody sort of knows the projects he has. And I'm like – Anything interesting and fun that's happened on the internet, Andy has his finger on. That's probably finger, true. You know, super super cuts and Kickstarter and all kind. You know, all kinds of what was it all uh, uh, kind of bloop and like yeah. everything everything fun. Somehow Andy has a finger. And I'm always like, oh yeah, that's right. He was involved in that too. But because Waxy was a bigger deal, I mean, that was this is this weird inflection point, right? It was you weren't pre Twitter, but Twitter had not become the mass phenomenon yet. Facebook was was ramping quite a bit up, but it was still on its ramp up cycle in 2009. You had blogs for crying out loud were like big, bigger in some ways, probably, and, and especially editorial blogs on major media sites were bigger. I always look to what are the enabling factors that came into play that made something work at a specific time. And social media doesn't seem to be entirely – you sort of rode the wave of social media 
being an enabler to let people do the viral spread, but you didn't start with it. It wasn't, oh, here's an easy way for people to spread this to millions of people. You started while this was still on the upswing. Yeah, and the growth all along has been very measured. You know, that that first year, it was just a series of, um, you, you know, of steps up. We did a did a blog post maybe a year or two ago called The History of Number Ones. Yeah. And walking through all the projects that had once been the most funded project. And, and I remember all those things so well. I mean, Allison Weiss was a project that was our second week. It was the first project to raise – or sorry, the third week. It was the first to raise over $5,000. That was big. There was an album by a guy from Austin named Five Times August. He was the first to crack $20,000, a project – from a guy named George Del Barrio, photographing musicians in Cambodia, was the first to cross $50,000. And all these were, were very, very gradual. The big marquee project of the first year was Scott Thomas doing Designing Obama, oh, yeah. a book of, uh, of designs from the Obama campaign in 08. So it was very, you know, it, it was very much like you were in the club to know what it was and to have used it. And you know, the, the way Kickstarter works hasn't changed all that much. There's just a lot more people that are part of this now. But, you know, we take pride in, in not having aggressively pushed this, that this just being something that's shared within communities. I remember the first year, the first year I, I was our only customer service person and approved every project. And I remember receiving a project from a woman, I believe in Chicago, to do a dance performance, but it was Indian classical dance. And it stuck out to me because I'd never seen an Indian classical dance project before. It's the first of its kind. And within a week, there were five live oh on the gosh. site. And wow. then I realized, it suddenly dawned on me how it was that this was spreading. That it was people within communities sharing with you know, their other peers and that was being validated uh, by each other in that kind of way. And that immediately felt right to us. Like if we're doing our job, this is how it should work. And so that, that felt good. And we, we continue to trust in that type of dynamic. I have a theory I would like to run by you that I know you know the answer to <laughs> because you know the numbers. It's something I've said for I, – I mean I've – you know, I sort of went crazy with crowdfunding. We first talked – I mean I talked to Perry back in early 2010 and I pitched The Economist on doing a feature about this. and It was very popular and now The Economist has written I think 15 pieces about crowdfunding and only a third of them have been me. But, but I remember the first – when I heard it and then saw the momentum in the early stages, people were dying to do this. What I have said – all along and would like either validation or refute me if I'm wrong is that people keep talking about crowdfunding fatigue. I hear this a lot. People are going to run out of patience. There's only a certain people you can tap. And I think every crowdfunding project brings its own natural audience with it. So you're not actually launching on Kickstarter. When I launch a project, I'm launching it into the group of people that already I already have connections with. And if I'm lucky then those people spread it and then I connect to other communities or I might go viral. Like the Glyph was the early good example there, the Glyph tripod adapter. That went viral. It got a lot of attention from product sites and Gizmodo and Gadget during Fireball and so forth. But in general, do I have that right? Is it people bring their audience with them and then other groups attach around it or, or that might get featured on Kickstarter? There's other things, but it's the group you bring with you that is the core of every Kickstarter project? Yeah, that's that's generally true. Um, you know, funding always begins with the people around you. And, you know, we don't see a fatigue from this at all. I mean, there's 140,000 people at back 10 or more projects. <laughs> it's increasing all the time. 
And there's six people who've backed more than a thousand projects. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. Wow. I'm not there yet. I'm at close to 900. I look forward to crossing one. I think I've done 25. I better step it up a little. But you know, the idea that like, Hey, there are too many movies in the world. People are not going to go see movies anymore. It's absurd. Like people don't respond to form in that way. They respond to the content that's within the form. And so people are just discerning about what projects they support. They always have been. They will continue to. So, you know, we've seen people uh, make those speculations, and there's been nothing in our data that we've seen to support that. And there is a audience, a Kickstarter audience, who's coming here on a daily basis to support projects. Um, I believe it's something like 50, I'm going to get the number wrong. We had it in our Spike Lee post. Something like 59% of all the money has been pledged by repeat backers, people who pledged back more than one project. And so those people are a real audience, but they're not enough to successfully fund a project. You know, people have to do the work of getting, getting the word out there. And as they get those early backers, it will validate the project to people who are just browsing the site. So, you know, early on, we were always very, very careful to emphasize, like, this is all about you getting the word out. And we still really do hit that note. But the truth is that there's a, there's a bigger Kickstarter audience now than there ever has been before. And, you know, unless things go horribly wrong, it will be even bigger a month from now. And it's because projects are continuing to, to bring people to platform. And people love backing projects. People love being a part of creating something new. We're not having to, no one's being manipulated here. People aren't cheap. This is something, this is a privilege to be part of these things. And uh, I don't know, I, I think that's really the experience people have. And, you know, we don't have concerns about, about fatigue with this. You know, this is each idea is its own special thing. And people are either excited about it or they aren't. And, you know, we think that makes sense that the system would work that way. I think that's a great way to look at it, that each idea is its own thing. And I, I think when you mentioned that Indian dance thing, it sparks that notion of is as a community discovers, like the larger community of people interested in Indian dance or, or perform in it, participate, that the minute you get one project and that sparks all this interest. I, so friends of mine are documentary filmmakers and they film this they, – uh, they produced this wonderful thing. I had a successful Kickstarter last year, uh, a documentary about uh, a Japanese man. He just, did he just turn 100 – Roy Matsumoto, he lives in Bainbridge Island here. And they had done a short documentary about him and they wanted to turn it into a full-length version that could be aired on PBS. And they've done this before. And they went to Kickstarter, but their key problem was most of their audience is 80 to 100-year-old Japanese-Americans. And those people are not on Kickstarter. But you know what? They raised – I think it was over $30,000. They did an enormous amount of outreach and I, and I told them – I this is a non-paid, informal, friendly you know, advice thing was you need to find you – know, was it Nisei, the next generation? The, the, there's, there's second and third generation Japanese-Americans who they know how to use a credit card on the internet. Have them talk to their parents. Explain it to them and that's what they did. They reached out to Japanese-American associations. They did a lot of publicity. They had a few higher-level packages that a couple big associations purchased to help push it along, and they funded – and they, I have the video upstairs. They produced it in just about the time they planned to. And to me, I thought, wow, they brought this whole community in. Now, there are all these people in the Japanese-American community who are interested in things about their own culture that – now are part of the system. And the next project or the next 10 projects that address that, they have an easier road. They don't have to explain Kickstarter the same way. They can show a successful project was done. Do you see that kind of bootstrapping, bringing more and more, like, I guess, communities or areas of interest in as well? Well, all projects are definitely chasing that 90-year-old Japanese demographic. That's a, <laughs> it's 
it's the money demographic, as everyone it's hard knows. To get them to use uh, yeah, I mean, listen, the first two years, every Kickstarter video was someone explaining what Kickstarter was and how it worked. Um, people have forgotten that. You know, that was like sixty percent of every video, and you would just see all these different ways of explaining it. No <laughs> one has to explain your money. it anymore. You give me your money, and then in a while, I will give you a thing or a thank you. But really, like people were people were having to explain the mechanics because it was new, and people don't have to do that anymore. You know, I, I mean, if you're if you're within a certain subset of the internet, and probably anyone who listens to this podcast would be in it. Kickstarter might seem like super obvious and old news, and who doesn't know this? Um, you know, five million people have backed a Kickstarter project, which is oh my gosh, an insane number. But when you compare it to, you know, the billion bus plus people on Facebook, we're tiny. We're tiny. Like there's so much more room for this to grow and so many more people who we believe are excited to be a part of making something. And so if there is a project from Zach Braff or Veronica Mars that's inviting an audience that never before thought they could be part of, be a part of the making of art and that a Kickstarter project, this Kickstarter project could be their invitation to do that and an invitation to do that for other people who they know or who they don't know. You know, to me, that is a wonderful thing. And so, you know, we're, we're excited about the impact that's been had so far. But in, in Internet scale terms, it's pretty tiny. And so what I think that shows is that these projects have really resonated, that they, it's amazing how big they are on the web. I mean, there's something about a Kickstarter page that takes an idea from zero to 100 in terms of, recognition and understanding that to me is unparalleled you know it's like the way these things fly around the web is insane you know veronica like like the veronica mars when that project launched it was the number one trending topic on twitter for at least the first day and if they had just announced there's a new veronica mars movie i don't think it would have had anywhere near that type of impact and i I think about something that that a great thing that my friend paul ford wrote which was that every Thing on the internet basically boils down to why wasn't I consulted, right? This is his theory. Every blog post is basically someone saying, why wasn't I consulted? <laughs> and, that is, and that is the core of what happens on the internet. It's just people talking about that and like what they would say if they were consulted. Yeah. And, and I think about that a lot. And there's a way in which a Kickstarter project really plays into that core question because ultimately it's a proposal. Hey, do you guys think that this is worth doing? And a lot of people get to vote yes or no. And you vote yes by backing, you vote no by moving on. And so maybe there's a way that this Kickstarter project, that a Kickstarter project answers that, that core question that is behind so much of the internet. Um, I don't know. So there's just something about it that just really, that connects with people. <laughs> and, beautiful. you know, I, I think that it has a, just even more potential to grow. And for us, the excitement of that potential is that more ideas get to exist and more people get to be a part of them. And, and we really believe that that has a profoundly positive effect for society in general, that we have more empathy for how ideas get made and have a greater understanding of art and feel a greater connection to it. Uh, there's a huge hunger for that. Like no one, no one is satisfied being a consumer, you know? I mean, the internet allows the opportunity for so much more and, and Kickstarter is really a great tool to unlock that. Yeah, well, so you hit upon like several different points. I have some notes here that I want to make sure and cover. One of the things was I wrote a piece for The Economist called uh, After the Veronica Mars and Zach Braff thing. It was um, uh, do popular Kickstarter. It was something like uh, should popular 
projects use or should, oh should famous people use Kickstarter I think was the title of it and uh, my answer was yes <laughs> based on the statistics you were putting out at the time and have seen since but I think there was this popular conception and so I kind of want to talk about that scale thing there was the popular conception in certain circles that Veronica Mars like subverted the system they, they broke Kickstarter I mean this was the argument for Penny Arcade's Kickstarter uh, was it almost two years ago a year and a half ago Penny Arcade broke Kickstarter because they were doing something that was a little different and it was removing Addis on their site and whatever it's like no it was rewards target specific goal blah so every you know Amanda Palmer broke it because she made a million 1.2 million dollars and then blah you know, every year there's a new giant campaign that comes along and people say this breaks the model but from your experience the statistics you have these huge projects seem to validate it but they aren't what you're most concerned about you like them but You've talked about what what is the effect of these big projects on the umbrella of the tens of thousands of smaller ones? Well, we've we've talked about these things, um, and you know we've seen that the arguments that have connected with people have been the more statistically based ones. Of hey, this is not zero sum. Mm-hmm. This brings more people to the platform who back other projects. New backers who discovered Kickstarter through Zach Braff and Veronica Mars have pledged over a million dollars to other projects in the months after. Like, this mm-hmm. is a windfall for everybody. I think that's important. If we did, if our research did find that there was cannibalization somehow or that the numbers for every other projects went through the floor if one of these projects was live, you know, I think that we would seriously think about whether this made sense to do whether it made sense for this stuff to happen. We find no evidence like that. Mm-hmm. So we know, we know these, new, these statistical arguments have connected with people. However, even if they didn't bring other people, I still do not believe that they're a misuse of the platform. Zach Braff is a creative person looking to make a movie. Same with Rob Thomas and Veronica Mars. This fits Kickstarter's purpose, its mission, its guidelines every single way. There's no sign saying you must be this indie to use Kickstarter, and we don't want that to be the case. I think it's beautiful that Spike Lee can have a project next to some kid who's inspired to make a movie because he loved Do the Right Thing. Kickstarter is a tool. It's like everyone using Pro Tools or a red camera, things like that. It's a method for creating art that we think should be available to everybody. So we really don't like, um, we really reject these arguments that this is somehow wrong, some kind of a perversion. You know, our mission was always to help creative projects come to life. And listen, my dream creators from the beginning have been uh, David Lynch and Jim Jarmusch. You know, Mm -hmm. they're just artists who I've loved my entire life. And it would just be amazing to see them be a part of something that I'm a part of. I don't think in any way that it would be wrong for them to use the system. And a lot of people are making these arguments against Zach and Spike and, and Rob Thomas based on this idea that, hey, they can get money in any way that they want. But this is not 1973 when Robert Altman can make a studio <laughs> movie of his dream that he had the night before, which he did, which is a movie Three Women, which is awesome and everyone should see. But this is not that world. That world doesn't exist. You know, this is a world where everyone is trying to hustle to put together the money they need to make things. Steven Soderbergh retired from film because it was too hard to fund things. So I think that if we're trying to say, like, Kickstarter should be so indie I think we really need to think about what our values are. And and I see people critiquing this in a way that would almost be a defense of like major labels. Like I see that with Amanda, people criticizing her saying, well, it's not her success. It was because she was on a major label that she's so successful. It's insane. It's insane. 
Well, and she'd so, left. The, she'd left the major label too. That was ago. part of the. Yeah. It was right. It's like she was as indie as. I, mean, I know, I but it's she, only because of their support yeah. and great work that people knew who uh, she was. I mean, it's it's so. But you know, so he. But I think the proof in the pudding for you is that w- the the million dollar plus projects are not the backbone. Like you know, I know you you guys get a five percent piece of what it works, and so bigger projects you get. A but, bigger that, piece, but that is. Let me just but, say right now that that is yeah. never ever ever. A guiding decision for us. Ever. Well, right. So but you so get five percent of if if you get a million dollars from a million dollar, or you get five percent of a million dollar project, you also get five percent of twenty thousand projects that add up to a million dollars. Well, eighty eighty five percent of projects, successfully funded projects, raise ten thousand dollars or less. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's still true, and that right. has not changed. Right. But of course, there are headlines around these big ones, and understandably so. And you know, and, and this is just this is the this is the platform dynamic. You know, everyone is working to their own scale. And yes, a first-time filmmaker who just graduated from NYU is going to work at a smaller scale than Spike Lee. But this makes sense. If you think it through, this makes sense. And the fact that Kickstarter can be equally useful for all of those things, to me, is a, is a huge positive. But, you know, we were nervous about what these things would do and whether or not they made sense and what mm-hmm. the impact would be. And we thought about this a lot. And we're not afraid to make decisions that will cost us money for having a better outcome long term. You know, what we did what we did with Kickstarter is not a store is a good example. Yes, and let's let's talk about that because that was the product thing. Yeah, I want to talk about that because that was I wrote up something about Boing Boing when it came out because there was boy was there a lot of anger from some product and some product creators. But at the same time it was you you know you must appreciate that Kickstarter is leaving money on the table. Pay attention to this because they could have said nothing. They could have allowed what was going on to continue, maybe had more unhappy people because of some of the unpredictability. But you guys left money on the table. Tell me how you came to that decision about uh, about products, about the, that category of products. Yeah, well, you know, last year was the year that the product design category really went crazy. You know, just lots of lots of big projects happened, and we're seeing new projects all the time. And um, there were some really long delays, is that, and that got a lot of attention. 2012 was the year of a long delays. Well, we should talk about delays too, because I'm not concerned about delays. I would say, just from the standpoint of people, there was a the, 2012 was the inflection point where Kickstarter started to get a certain kind of coverage of a subset of projects that were that were very late or had some difficult or slightly late in some cases, not even very late, but had some manufacturing issues or whatever. And these were all ultimately fulfilled typically by late 2012 or early 2013. But I felt like there was a change in a media narrative about it It was trying to make Kickstarter look like, oh, okay, this has now gotten out of control. And I was, you know, I'm I'm a counter narrative person. I was trying to force against that to look at the broader scope of things. But, But I thought the product announcement you made was... I'm not talking about it being reactive, but more in light of an emerging narrative in the media that was trying to find, you know, what's the downside of this? What's the negative story we can tell about it? Well, you know, just to start with the delays thing, just real quickly. Yeah. I think, I think every headline I saw about the pebble being fulfilled included the word finally. (laughs) Right. And, and like, I would, I would invite the world to step back for a minute. I think about the fact that Eric launched the pebble project, I believe it was in April, April or May. Um, he's seeking to raise $100,000. He had an estimated delivery date of, I believe, September. And right. he and his buddies were planning on making these in his garage. And they were right. hoping to make like 500 watches. And instead, he had to make 90000 Right. And instead of finishing in September, he finished in January. So he took four months longer. And so the entire process of making and fulfilling this thing ended up being around nine months. 
So as long as it takes for a baby to gestate, it took him to do this. And yeah. the entire time, yeah. and the entire time, every couple of weeks, he was posting videos from the factory floor in Shenzhen, showing us how you know the watch face was being designed and all these things. And being a backer, you got this entire tour of what it is to work within the global supply chain and to manufacture something. It was a master class. The same thing also happened with KC with Elevation Labs, where I have mine. I was a backer. They were two months late, I think, in the end. I think delivery was staggered, but they weren't that late. Their scale went enormously up. They were trying to, to make uh, – they're not new manufacturing processes, but they had to scale up everything they did. They wanted to make everything in the United States. They had all these goals. They achieved them. And it was – they are not responsible for Apple changing from a dock connector to the lightning connector. And I think they got the blame of a market change outside of what they did because they weren't that late. And I use my dock. I got the lightning adapter and I use, I use it now. It's my favorite thing. No, no one cares about – if you're looking at a work, no one thinks about how long it took to make it. You're not judging it like, oh, well, the Sistine Chapel, that was four years. Honestly, if it were six months, I would be impressed. No one thinks about art in that way. It's only being framed in this way because of how transparent the Kickstarter process is and the fact that you're being invited to be a part of it. And people have already take that for granted. They take it for granted that it's transparent. And we're, we're so used to that, we don't even notice that's the water that we swim in. And instead, people just complain about this deadline thing. And, you know, in actuality, there's a great quote from a game designer, I forget who, but it said, like, a late game is late only once, but a flawed game is flawed forever. <laughs> right? And it's right. You'd rather people yes, to take yes. their time. You don't Do want right. a Facebook approach of move fast and break things with project fulfillment, with creating of art. You want people to produce a work that they feel proud of that meets their own standards. Now, it's up to the creator to talk about that process and to be transparent about it. And, you know, uh, the focus on lateness, uh, I think, is problematic because what it does is it incentivizes creators to take shortcuts to hit deadlines rather than put the best product they can forward. Well, and this was where this is the pre-order versus, you know, what is Kickstarter about? Is it a, is it a site in which you're pre-ordering a product? Is it a site in which you're supporting? The first Kickstarter I did in 2009 that I supported, I do not have it yet, and I have no unhappiness about that at all. I was supporting an author. Like the guy, his career has actually been fabulous since then. He will eventually deliver the thing. I have no concerns about it. I, and, and I, whenever I do a Kickstarter, you know, sometimes there's a, oh, there's a tension between whether – you really want the thing to show up and you know, and people are committed to do it. They're supposed to do it. That's their contract with me between the creator and me is they're supposed to fulfill this thing they promise. But I also – I understand that I'm taking a risk because I'm involving – I'm getting involved in something that hasn't been done yet and I want to support that idea. So with that context and with this sort of notion of delays and lateness and people's expectations, you guys went and revised the product policy. How did you come to the specifics because that seemed like a lot of specific changes to try to maybe manage expectations of backers. Yeah, there were, there were basically three or four changes. Um, you know, something that we've been talking about for a while. Like Kickstarter, Kickstarter is still an experiment. It's a living experiment. <laughs> it really is. It's an idea that, that the three of us had that we wanted to try to make real. And it's our job as the stewards of this thing to keep a close eye on it and keep it moving in the right direction. And this use of Kickstarter to manufacture and distribute products at some sort of scale was a use that we had not anticipated. And so we had to think about the system as it currently functions. Does it work? Does it produce the best outcomes possible for these types of projects? And we felt like in general that it did, but that there were some things that we saw as, as troubling. And one was that, you know, backers were 
sometimes acting as consumers and creators who are also treating them as consumers. And what we were seeing is we were seeing some of the language of traditional advertising within Kickstarter. And by that, I mean 3D renderings and product simulations, someone holding up a matchbook and saying, this matchbook is powering this entire room and you have no way of knowing whether they're full of shit or not. And this type of stuff flies in advertising where people are just trying to maximize and deal with consequences later. But we wanted to build a, a world that was oriented very differently, where your backers are your peers. And you're talking to people about how things get made, and that's why we're all here. You show the ugly prototype with the wire sticking out so that one backer can be like, hey, if you move the circuit board over here, this will solve X, Y, or Z problems. And there's this way in which there's just kind of this shared experience of making something. And that, to us, felt at the root of Kickstarter. And so we're thinking about that. Uh, we're also thinking a lot about um, the truth in advertising laws put forth here in, here in the States in the 20s to just try to uh, secure for consumers the idea that the things that they're seeing are largely true. And so we tried to apply a similar kind of thought um, with these specific categories because this is where we saw this type of behavior. You don't see in a dance project people think they're like buying a dance performance. They, they have a <laughs> sense that they're contributing to the creation of something. And so, uh, yes, we made a couple rules. One, we said um, no 3D renderings. This came from – I spent about a year talking to product designers and people very high up in these worlds. And I asked them a lot about 3D renderings, and a lot of people admitted to me that they couldn't tell the difference between a 3D rendering and a real image, and that the world of design had moved very much in the 3D rendering direction, and that you just figure out how to make it look like that later. And that just instinctively felt off to me. Product simulation, same thing. Like, don't promise the future before you prototype it. You know, build it out. Show the ugly prototype. This is the type of world where people get it. They're, they're going to understand. They're going to be excited about it. And they're also going to cut you, you know, more slack. Um, we ask people to talk about their experience and their plan for how they're going to make it. So don't just be like, hey, it'll be ready by Christmas. And you never try to justify that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final change is that we prohibited these projects from offering more than one of a thing. So if you went to a project page and it was like, hey, you can get one or five or 10 or 50 or 100, it made it feel like, well, this stuff is just sitting on a shelf. They're going to pop it in a bubble envelope and mail it to you. Instead, the idea of this mentality of like, cool, I'm in for one, maybe created more of that sense of like, we're all in this together to make something. And so, you know, we put out those changes. I think people reacted generally kind of badly to them um, and, <laughs> and people were, were frustrated and I, I still think that uh, there is that sentiment on the web, but we view these as being very common sense, sensible rules that are ultimately about creating a better experience for everybody. And, you know, we continue to look at these things again and, you know, are, are these creating the, the right outcomes that we want? And um, I still think there's tons of room for improvement for, for how we operate, but uh, we generally feel like these things have, have been good and are, are ultimately better for, for projects. I mean, we do this, like our mission is for things to get made, and these are changes that we thought would support that. Well, it's also it's not like you guys you you don't own the patent on crowdfunding. You don't have a you have an to my knowledge, and I'm I'm going to almost assert this has to be true. You've not gone after other crowdfunding sites. You don't have the ability to stop product makers from participating in other sites that have different models. Well, you know, yeah. and, there's a t and there's several of them now, and some of them are starting to scale up. And you may be the 800-pound gorilla because you have this very broad base and you're best known. You have the best participation now. But the ecosystem is going to be in the billions of dollars in a couple of years. And we're already seeing other companies with – you know, Indiegogo is, I think, famously sort of started 
with a slightly different model around this around the same time as you guys, but they have a slightly different approach. But they still they're doing gangbusters at a at a lower level, but they're not. You know, it's and then there's other sites that have come to being like a crowd supply. There's these other firms that are starting up to fit the ecosystem in which you folks have figured this does not suit your model or your audience. You're not preventing people from starting other companies that do this. Oh, no, but people realize, and rightly, that they'll make less money anywhere else. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's true. I mean, there are, there are, I think there's like 700 crowdfunding sites out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, every single one of them looks exactly like Kickstarter. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> it's ridiculous the amount of, the amount that that happens. But, you know, that's fine. Uh yeah, I mean, everyone's trying to do this thing. They're trying to do it for the various verticals. Everyone's trying to differentiate themselves from Kickstarter in various ways. Without question, you know, our, our system is by far the most effective. And yeah, I mean, it's close to $800 million that's flowed through Kickstarter. That's more than every other site combined, easily. Right. Easily. And, you know, there is a lot of disinformation. Um, you know, there, this, there's like this crowdfunding industry report that someone's put out the past two years that Felix Salmon at Reuters eviscerated a year ago for terrible methodology that claims that like $5 billion was spent in crowdfunding this year. That's completely oh, untrue. Yeah, I didn't, that was absurd. It's completely untrue. They're counting charitable giving and lending club and everything. Yeah. Microfinance. Yeah. Everything was in there. Right. Right. And so there are people who are out there doing that. And this is troubling to us because crowdfunding is both bigger than ever and much smaller than you've been led to believe. And when you have people who are trying to inflate these numbers for reason of like to try to get the jobs back to pass or to try to exert influence in certain ways, but they're doing it on false premises, you know, I, I think that's troubling. And we want to see this industry be one that's very transparent. You know, we, we take great pains to make all of our numbers clear. We have a page on our site that shows our live numbers. It updates several times a day behind pretty much everything. And we're constantly thinking about what else can we put on that page to make clear you know, we see none of that anywhere else, and it's we know why. It's because their numbers are much smaller in comparison, and they don't want to show that. But we think that this is an, an industry that's just being formed, and there's an opportunity to set uh, certain, I don't know, certain uh, amounts of transparency and honesty and clarity. Uh, and we want to set a high bar for that because, you know, we, we'd like to see this industry go a certain way. But yes, by all means, there are, there are many projects that do not fit on Kickstarter, and they can go anywhere else. They can use Indiegogo, which you know is very open about the fact that they'll work with anything. Or they can use these, these platforms that are focused on specific niches. It's still true, however, and I think it will continue to be true, that if your project fits Kickstarter's guidelines and you're in one of the countries in which we're available, there's no reason to use anything else. That's right. You want the biggest – yeah, if you want the biggest response to it, it's true. If you, But you know, I think, I think the, the thing that gets me is that I think there's – the, there, there's going to be room for all aspects, including post-Kickstarter sales. There's you know, multiple sites now that handle work with designers oh, yeah, or other sure. product makers for that. There's an ecosystem that's still um, still developing around it that will get bigger and bigger. But it's it's if someone figures out a better way to handle product stuff than Kickstarter and can bring enough people to it, then that could be successful. But it, it has to – and I realize there are the advantages, first mover advantages, advantages of scale and so forth. But there's nothing inherently preventing it. I've seen this problem a lot is that when you build the best forum, whether it's a marketplace or a place to discuss, people get incredibly angry at you if you don't let them say everything they want to do, even if it's to the detriment of the forum. It's, and I saw people posting uh, in the Boing Boing post I wrote, uh, Kickstarter has no right to restrict the kinds of stuff we're doing with products. They're destroying my business. And I'm like, well, it's kind of A, Kickstarter is a facilitator. It's its own business. And B, they're acting in the interests of 
all the people participating in this, not just to the interest of a, a, a limited group in which they don't feel that the interests are coincidental enough to continue down the same path. I mean, we we devote probably more time internally to governance than anything else. Mm. You know, what we've built is very copyable. A Kickstarter might be the most copied startup in the world. I mean, there's like Microsoft has a Kickstarter. GE has a Kickstarter. I mean, everyone is doing this thing. What is hard to copy is the values that drive us, the amount of care we put into governing the site and trying to produce the best outcomes for the system, the type of long-range thinking that we have. If we were a, if we were a company that was focused on maximization and gobbling market share and all those things, we would function entirely differently. We are, we are a group of people that is determined to honor this thing that we are fortunate enough to lead. And we know, looking around the rest of this industry, that, you know, we don't see that kind of care. And so, you know, we feel a responsibility both to Kickstarter, this thing that we've worked on for over 10 years, to the millions of people who have used the site, to all the creators who have used us now and will hopefully use us in the future, to honor this thing and to treat it with respect and dignity and to try to create a place that's safe, that's predictable, that is transparent, that is honest, and that is aligned around the right goals. And so keeping yourself on that track and taking that seriously is something that you have to do all the time. And every company gives lip service to mission and to values and things like that. But to me, the fact that we left money on the table with something like Kickstarter's on a store, the fact that we will not pursue the Jobs Act, even though I'm sure that will be lucrative in the near term, to me, those are things that show our character and show what we care about and that hopefully align us, you know, with the creative community that we're a part of. I mean, we're not, we're not really business people, you know, we're, we're just, we're kind of, we're fans. We're people who love making shit. And here we've been fortunate enough to create something that helps other people make stuff. And it's the greatest privilege of our lives to be a part of this. And so, you know, we really like that is always the front of our minds and we are, very introspective and emo and think about the stuff very <laughs> seriously. Like when I see people, when I see these debates about various parts of the Kickstarter system, you know, I always want to say like, listen, we've been talking about this for eight years, you know, and we're mm -hmm. still trying to figure out what makes sense and we're not sure. But like, trust me, we're, we're really thinking hard about this. And if you have ideas, we'd love to hear them because we're, we're trying to figure out a way that this system can scale and work for centuries. I mean, it sounds absurd, but this idea, even if Kickstarter crashes and burns tomorrow, this idea is not going anywhere. This is a part of our culture for a long, long time. And we're proud. Well, hasn't this already changed the way arts funding has changed tremendously? Every, it's changed forever. Everyone I've talked to in, in theater, dance, uh, comic, I mean, anything with performance, anything with personal creativity where one person or a couple people can do something, every single person I know, hundreds, hundreds, maybe thousands through Twitter – are either doing a Kickstarter, wondering about doing it, or have done one. You know, it's it has profoundly changed, even though there are, what is it, you've had 114,000, according to your current stats, 114,244 launch projects. But the the uh, that extends out to millions of people who participated and millions of people in related fields or in the same field who are aware of and are maybe a beneficiary of it at some level, too. It's changed arts and culture uh, and the way it gets funded, period. And business funding, and you know, it's going to mm -hmm. keep it's going to keep rippling out. And so this is this is there now. And so yeah, we don't own this, you know, but we don't own this. We don't want to own this, you know. We this is something that we 
It's just an idea that we have shepherded. And it's been around long before us. I mean, we love talking about Alexander Pope and the Iliad, <laughs> you know, and the fact that there's this long history of things being made in this way. And that if, if, you, if, you, turn, if you cock your head sideways a little bit, you could see that the past 85 years of art and culture being commoditized by companies is actually maybe the weird blip and yeah. the long history of culture. And that this sense of this way of community-based funding and creation is actually the way we've been making culture since, you know, the first tribe emerged from the caves. And that this is more true to the human spirit and to what it is that we feel compelled to do. So, you know, we put a real trust in human nature and people's desire to be creative and be a part of creative things. And maybe that makes us naive. It certainly makes us idealistic. We're proud of those things. That's who we are and that's who we will always be. I will say as an outside observer who's followed you all, I mean, crowdfunding in general and you all in specific, you show again and again that you are you're not just leaving money on the table. You don't want the Kickstarter project backers to be your customers. I mean, they are. You facilitate, right? You're a layer of facilitation that is trying to provide the least amount of friction. And I think every day that goes by, I see that there are choices you could make differently where you could seize the customer more. The backer could be more your customer that you own and as a commodity, you push to projects, you've done nothing, or maybe the reverse of that even, in four and a half years. And I think, the, I think that shows to anybody who might be cynical about what you guys do, all you have to do is look at all the choices you made, as you say, that could have been different, and you're still in the same place. These, the, the backer is still, the relationship is with the project creator. You guys are there to bring them together and to make it easy to collect money, easy to fulfill, easy to have that communication. Yeah, I mean, we feel like that's in the best interest of everybody. Well, look, so let me finish with one final thing. Uh, so many people listen to this podcast. So many people I talk to are daunted about how to get started. Do you have a couple pieces of good advice? If somebody says, I have this thing. I have a book. I have a project. I have a dance performance. I have a, a film I want to shoot. What should they do to get prepped for this? How should they go into thinking about how to structure a project? Yeah, I mean – you know, the, the first step is always just to, to really think about that one idea you feel compelled to, to really pursue. What you choose to put on Kickstarter or just in general, what you choose to go after should be something that you love because if it succeeds, you're going to end up doing spending a lot of time on it. <laughs> so just from a personal, personal life perspective, I would encourage you to do that. Um, you know, the, our, the build tool that we have within the system to build a Kickstarter project is actually uh, a really good tool even if you never intend to use Kickstarter. Because basically you're just prompted to answer different questions and to, pr to present your project within a certain prism. And basically it's about trying to help you present your idea clearly, showing what people get out of it by participating, mm -hmm. and really emphasizing what is that final thing that you're going to achieve by this project happening. And so I think these, are, these types of questions and approach are kind of agnostic to Kickstarter and yeah. are, are a helpful process to go through. So I, I would say to, to do that, I would say take your most brutally honest friend out for coffee and see what they think. Uh, I think, you know, maybe, maybe look at your project while you're drunk and be like, would I actually, would I actually go through with this or not? Um, you know, I think those sorts of checks are really helpful. Um, you can also talk to us. We're happy to, to give you advice and sort of help you think through your idea. I should point uh, out too is that that's one of the great things. I'm not sure people who haven't launched a 
Kickstarter campaign realize that you guys give feedback. I have a number of people who've run projects where they put something out there, and the you know the, your your representatives. I don't know sure what you call them internally, but they they consult on the project. They say, you know you know we don't know about the efficacy of this, but we know historically if you yeah. price it at this way. You're not going to do as well if you price it this way. Can you – if you shift it down, we're not going to block it. You can launch it, but maybe you should do it this way to get a more uh, – higher chance of success. This is, this is the great mystery about Kickstarter and it's completely our fault, which is <laughs> how is it that projects get onto the site? Yeah. You know, there's, there's this general sense that there's some kind of review process or something, but people don't really know what it is. And I don't know why, but we haven't talked about it a lot. And so we're going to do that soon. We're going to explain the whole process, but I'd be happy to preview it here for, for your listeners. Um, but basically, you know, we have these guidelines uh, that set the rules of the site. Every single site in the universe has these. And every site's guidelines are pretty much the same as ours, which is like stay on topic. And our topic <laughs> is creative projects. Yeah. And so we have these rules that define what that means and to try to – and yeah, just sort of a definition about how the system works. Now, every site has rules. Uh, most people apply these rules after content has already launched. So someone puts up some infringing YouTube video or something that, that breaks one of their guidelines, and YouTube pulls it down. Mm-hmm. For us, the nature of a project is such a personal thing and also such a public thing that it's so much harder to pull something down. And it ends up being a, a serious emotional and social cost to everyone involved in that. And so we decided very early, you know what, we should apply these guidelines before things go up because that makes the most sense. That's going to produce the best outcome for people in general. So we have this process where after you build a project, um, you're asked to submit your project for review. And we explain what we're going to do. We're going to look at it based on our rules and we're going to let you know whether it passes or not. So someone submits their project, a member of our team, they're called project specialists. We have a person for each category. So they're experts in a category. And they, they will watch the video, they'll read the rewards, read the description, and they'll make sure it doesn't break any rules. It's not mm-hmm. a deeply strenuous test. Um, you're just like, hey, is there, are they offering to give money away to charity? Are they trying to sell drugs? Is there, you know, <laughs> porn in this? I mean, there's like, the rules are pretty basic. And there's some things that are a little more nuanced that have been, we've learned over time. And so Do you guys if, look for scams at that stage too? Is I realize that, you know, there's clear, I mean, people are going to... No, no. I mean, I think that... We have simple algorithmic things that will detect mm-hmm. weirdness and that will I go see. to a different team. But no, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not checking to see, hey, can, this, can these guys really make that EP? Do they have what it takes? You know, mm-hmm. There is no curation whatsoever. Kickstarter does not curate projects. Mm-hmm. We have never turned away a film because your film isn't good enough. It's right. solely to preserve a space for creative things. Mm-hmm. So if a project doesn't meet the guideline or if the project – is fine, checks all the boxes. They're immediately notified they can launch. We give them some advice and some encouragement. About 80% of projects are accepted. Eight mm-hmm. zero, eighty 80%. That's, that's higher than the early days, isn't it? I remember it being a much it lower is higher. figure. It is higher than the early days, but it was never, mm-hmm. but I think, I don't remember what it was. I think it was maybe 60% before. I think the number now is like 77%, something like People that. People have gotten it more. They know more when they prep for this to, to check all the boxes and not to do stuff that's in the, the list that you can't do. Yeah, I think so. And then, and then mm-hmm. there's some projects where there are things that are fixable. Like, hey, you're offering a sword as a reward. But listen, we don't allow swords. So maybe you don't <laughs> offer a sword. And once people make those changes, they can launch. And then there are projects that are just non-starters. Someone's raising money for charity. They want to pay for their dog's medical bills. They want to open a Denny's on Route 9. And these are things that we just say, hey, this is not what we do. You know, here are rules once again. Sorry, you know, you, 
you should pursue this project in some other way and we wish you the best. And so you know, that's how the system works. And if you disagree with our decision, you can appeal it. There's an appeal process where you can edit your project as much as you want. You can send an accompanying message. It's like, hey, here's, what, here's why you guys were so wrong and here's what I did. And then we can take a look after that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a process that is really not scary, but because we haven't been transparent about it, it seems that way. And we see people arguing that we curate projects and all this stuff. It's completely untrue. If you're doing something creative, you should be on Kickstarter. We made this site for you. It works really well. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of good people work here uh, who are happy to help you. And so, you know, this is just an example of we've been so focused on on governance and, and how to handle how quickly this has grown that something simple like explaining how it is we do what we do, is just we just haven't made time for. And so that's something that will change soon. Well, that's good. I think yeah, there is a little bit of the black box, but once you're inside it, it's it's great. You know, I um I got when I I launched a failed Kickstarter, which uh, I canceled the weekend when I realized there was no way it's going to reach my total. I got good advice. I got good advice from Andy Bayo after I had launched. I should have asked them ahead of time. I got good <laughs> advice from your folks before I launched. I got good advice from tons of people, and I learned so much that I launched this podcast as a result. There you go. This podcast is a direct outcome, and it's been delightful. And at some point, I'm going to come back. I have a couple ideas. That I'll come back for, and I will follow the guidelines carefully, and, and I, will <laughs> I will listen to advice this time. Yancy, thank you so much for explaining what you do and how it works. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, anytime. Thanks for having me. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.